Well, it's great to be with you this evening as we begin our series through the book of Ruth. Calling the series Redeemed, the Ruth story. Um, And it is a beautiful story of redemption. Um, In fact, I remember times just reading the story and really being moved to tears at the um at at Boaz and and uh and his redemption and as I've been reading and preparing and thinking about Ruth um I've just been really helped and really encouraged and really reminded of how beautiful the story of redemption really is so I really look forward in sharing it with you over the past uh next few weeks before we get started this evening, let's pray again together. Father, I thank you for this privilege now to minister your word, and I just pray that you'd help me and speak and that you would help us hear from you, Lord. And help us, God, to see, Lord, the story of Ruth and how it fits, God, into your story, into our story. And I pray you just grant us the eyes to see its beauty and your beauty as you work, Lord, even in the midst of brokenness and darkness. And we thank you that you are a God who does so. And we give you all the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 1. Um, To modern readers, especially younger generations, the story of Ruth might seem strange, unusual. It assumes understanding of the culture of those times, particularly of Jewish marriage customs, and how the the social structure in those days worked. It also assumes an understanding of who Israel was as a nation in relationship to God and what God is working throughout history and where this story fits in it all. All these things are important to correctly understanding Ruth, uh, because without these things, it may seem perhaps as somewhat as a somewhat nice or maybe weird story of how a widow tried to catch a decent guy with the advice of her former mother-in-law. But with the correct background... It is perhaps a story of unparalleled beauty in the scripture, of how God redeems the broken messes of our tiny lives to work something greater through them all in the whole course of human history centered about a single man, a promised redeemer to whom every other redeemer and act of redemption points. We're going to flesh these things out along the way, but the first thing that I want to do just by means of introduction is to say that to understand Ruth, we must understand that Ruth is about much more than Ruth. It's about sin. It's about judgment. It's about covenant love and faithfulness, and it's about the redemption of the world. So that's what we're going to learn throughout this story of Ruth, and we're going to begin In Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. 
We're going to read the whole chapter 1 here. Ruth 1.1 1, 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in, Ju- in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, both Mal- and both Malon and Kilion died. And so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way for... For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? No. Uh, would, uh, would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when they... Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her. She said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when... The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three truths from our passage this evening. Number one, life is hard, living broken in brokenness. Life is hard living broken in brokenness. Number two, God gives grace in unexpected ways. God gives grace in unexpected ways. And number three, the Lord is at work in the good and the bad. The Lord is at work in the good and the bad. 
First, we see that life is hard living broken in brokenness. The story of Ruth begins with uh, locating the story in Israel's history. It says, in the day when the judges ruled, verse 1, there was famine in the land. So, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, as I believe the author assumes that his readers will be, you get an immediate grasp of the context of the story. The period of Judges occurs after the Exodus, of course, where God delivers them from slavery in Egypt by the hand of Moses. And then God led them out of, after delivering them from slavery, saving them, he takes them to Mount Sinai where he made a covenant with them. The covenant with, was uh, for them uh, how they were to love the God who had saved them. How they were to live as distinct from the world as a people uh, chosen by God, a people of his own possession. They were to live distinct from this world, loving God their Savior as manifested by keeping his laws. If they obeyed, God would bless them. And the land would be their eternal inheritance. But if they broke the covenant, God would remove them from the land of promise and great judgment. And Joshua, as you know, ultimately is the one who led them into the promised land. And the generation uh, of Joshua remained uh, faithful. But after Joshua and that generation passed away, we have the period of the judges. The period of the judges were, were dark days. For Israel, the book of Judges is really a descending spiral where Israel, generation after generation, dec- declines more and more into greater moral degeneration. And as we've said before, the, a pattern is the book of the book of Judges is quite evident. If you've read it, you've picked up on it. They would rebel against God. They would break His covenant, and then God would send other nations against them to oppress them in judgment. And then they would cry out to God for mercy, and then God would have compassion on them and raise up a judge, usually a mighty warrior, who would deliver them, who would deliver them from their enemies. But then as soon as things were okay, after a little while and that judge passed away, they would go right back and did the same thing except worse before. And it, so it was a descending spiral of moral degeneration. Kind of like our culture today. And understanding this, we understand that the story of Ruth is during this period of time. And so if we understand that, we can understand some aspects of the story. Uh, we see... That the story then is embedded in days of general darkness and disobedience on the part of Israel. It starts with a famine. It says, in the days that the judges ruled, there was famine on the land. From, in the understanding of the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, famine was one of the curses that was pronounced upon Israel for their disobedience. So you have to remember, the writer of this narrative, he's not just, he's not just communicating facts. He has a theological perspective. By saying that there was famine over the land, he is saying that God's judgment was upon the people of Israel at this time. Famine is one of the curses of God pronounced upon the nations for disobedience. And the, con- the contrast is striking here in the ancient Hebrews would have understood it. Because it says there in verse 1, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah 
went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Well, Bethlehem, the word, it's actually two words in Hebrew because it's a phrase. Beit Lechem, which means house of bread. And so there's actually a stark contrast in the beginning of the story because the author is actually saying that there is famine even in the place called the house of bread. That's how bad it is in Israel. And, and it's a result of their disobedience. Sin has consequences. And so due to the famine, this family packs up to leave Israel. And it's not especially clear that others decided to do that. The only ones we know of, of doing that is uh, Elimelech. And it's clear that, it seems clear that other people stayed because when Naomi returned, people remembered her. They remembered her. And so it may be then, we don't know for sure, but it may be that Elimelech maybe wasn't an especially righteous man. Because by choosing to leave Israel, that could be representative of the fact of his lack of faith of the God of Israel. Because remember, Israel was the promised land. It was the land of promise. It was the land that God had given them. So leaving the land is in essence leaving God's promise. Leaving the inheritance that God had entrusted to them specifically that he had given to his people. And so rather than dealing with the root issues in Israel in those days, namely repenting of their sin, rather than dealing with the issues, Elimelech just packs up and leaves and goes to live in a foreign land, which, by the way, was one of the judgments of God, that one of the climactic judgments of God on Israel for their disobedience would be to kick them out of the land. Because the land was their inheritance, was the promise. And so we see here, then in addition to this, that those who bear the greatest weight of this tragedy uh, are the widows who remain. Uh, These these three men, this uh, Elimelech and his two sons, they all die uh, in the land of Moab. And so again, in the context of this situation here and in that day, death in a foreign land was considered one of the worst things that could happen to a person. It it means you have no inheritance. It means you have no place that belongs to you. You have no home. And you you die with, with, with nothing and you leave no legacy behind, no family to live on. You have to understand, they understood that you lived, you lived on through your family. And so the, the, to lose all the, the men in the family would be a symbol of great judgment. And so I believe early Hebrew readers of the book of Ruth would read this and they would say, my goodness, think of how terrible what has happened to them. That this man has been left with nothing, with no family, no one to carry on his name, no inheritance. And of course, they leave three widows behind. And women in this time really had no means of provision outside of their family or their husband. And without the care of their family, women were essentially left destitute, which explains why the Old Testament law gave explicit provision, provisions to provide for the orphans and for the widows, because they had no means of provision outside of that. And so apart from the care and compassion of other people, a widow would ba- and orphans would basically be left destitute. And so what we see here, the way this story begins, is with brokenness. This isn't a new story. 
And it's really not that different from our stories, from our story today. We are broken people who live in a broken world. You read the story of Naomi and there's a famine. They, they're starving. They leave. All her family dies. She, ten years later, she has to go home and she's not sure that when she goes home, she's going to have anything anyways. It's brokenness. It's a broken mess. That's the story then, but it's the same story today. We're broken people living in a broken world. We wrestle with our own sin. And that's actually the greatest wrestling of all. We wrestle with the sins of others against us. We deal every day with sin and its effects because the Bible says that all of brokenness in the world is a result of sin. From my own personal sin and brokenness and fears and anxieties and angers and bitternesses and worries and self uh, 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 insecurities and things like that. All that and pride and arrogance and greed and lust. All those things are a weight of sin, and all those things in the other people are a result of sin. But not just that, but the Bible says the world is broken because of sin. The wages of sin is death. So disease, decay, sickness, ailments, cancer, all these things are a result of sin as well. Relational brokenness and and broken relationships and bitterness and envy and jealousy and all these things, all everything is broken because of sin. And we see that the Bible, and we see it right here in the book of Ruth, is that the Bible acknowledges this reality. It doesn't shy away from it. You see, some people kind of have this illusion or naive assumption that maybe if I came to Christianity, then, my, then God would make everything better. But you see, Jesus actually talked about some seed that was sown along the rocky soil and it sprung up, but then when it got hot... It withered up and died because of the troubles of this world. Christianity is not naive about the reality of brokenness. It has an explanation for it. We have to remember that God nowhere promises us an easy life. If you've been unbelievably blessed in your life, you better thank God for it. Because it's it's a gift. It's not owed to us. The Bible nowhere promises us an easy life. Jesus was the only person who ever lived a perfect life, and he was crucified for it. The earliest followers, the earliest leaders of Jesus Christ, all the apostles save one, according to church tradition, were martyred for their testimony of the faith of Jesus Christ. The Bible is replete with heart-rending stories of human brokenness, evil, disaster, and tragedy. The story of the Bible is not one of health, wealth, and prosperity. The story of the Bible is one of redemption of the brokenness. It's the story of how the brokenness came to be and what God is doing throughout history to make it right. That's the story of the Bible. It's the story of Ruth. It's the story of the world. It's your story. And it's my story. So the first thing we see, number one here, is that life is hard living broken in brokenness. Life is hard living broken in brokenness. But number two, God gives grace in unexpected ways. God gives grace in unexpected ways. Despite what seems to be the effects of judgment of God on rebellious Israel, and even in the case of the the death of these three Israelite men in the foreign land, we still see a remarkable picture of God's 
grace and faithfulness. We've commented already on the situation that these widows are left in. Uh, Naomi is older at this time. She really has no hope of remarriage at her age. So she and she really only has so she really only has one option to return home to Bethlehem where she has just heard that the Lord has visited his people and that they now have food. So this is somewhat a turn in the story that began with almost nothing but tragedy, famine, and death. It's a turn in the story where it says that the Lord had visited his people. And this phrase is a, it's a common phrase in the Bible, and it can mean that the Lord visiting his people either for good or for ill, with blessing or with judgment. But in this case, the Lord is visiting his people for good. And, it, and the narrator acknowledges uh, that it says the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So you see, the narrator even acknowledges that, is the, that God is the provider, that he is the giver and the taker away of food. That's how we know that the famine has theological significance, that the God is the giver and provider of our earthly needs. And from a literary perspective, this is one of the ways that he is telling us that God is about to bring some light in the midst of this darkness. She had heard that God had visited his people. So we're getting a a shimmer of light in the midst of Naomi's deep darkness. God is moving for good. And she begins to return home. But then she pleads with her daughters-in-law to return home to their families, to their mother's house. There would be little hope for them back in Israel. At first, both women resist. It seems they've developed a very close connection with their mother-in-law. But Naomi urges them all the more. And then she references the practice of what we call Leverite marriage. She says to them, one of the ways she tries to persuade them to stay in Moab, is she says, have I yet sons in my womb, or would you wait till they were grown? So, again, you have to understand the context, and we read, about, we read that passage earlier in the service, where blessing upon one's family was understood to be long life and numerous uh, offspring, and a great name is measured by your descendants, right? So remember the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible is one of the family of God. Remember that, that first gospel in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. You, you shall bruise his heel and he shall bruise your head. What is that? That means the story of the Bible is the story of two families. The family of Satan and the family of God. And all the, the whole Bible is replete with genealogies that are doing what? That are tracing the lineage of the family of God. And remember, God gets to Abraham and he makes Abraham a promise. And he says, I will make your offspring as many as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the sky. What is that a way of saying? It's a way of saying, Abraham, Abraham, you're going to live forever. Because they understood that they lived through their family, their lineage, their legacy, their name was carried forward forever into the offspring. Therefore, to have no offspring was to have your name cut off. It was to be condemned to being forgotten, of having no legacy, of basically being erased from history. So one of the greatest possible curses then for a man would to be have your name to cut off, that is to die without any offspring, no one to carry on your family name. 
For a family line to die out is to erase one's heritage, his lineage, his legacy. And of course, there's lots at stake here in the story of the Bible because remember of that promise. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. What is that? It's a promise of what? A redeemer. A promised redeemer who would destroy the devil and who would redeem the world of its brokenness. But that offspring is going to, is just, is just that, an offspring. It's a descendant. It's a family line. That means God has interest in doing what? In preserving a family line. So that, why? So that the promised redeemer would one day be born. And so we know that the enemy then was keen on cutting off the family line of Israel. But God promised to preserve it, to raise up an offspring, a redeemer. And so... Because of this significance of the, of the carrying on of one's family line, God actually commanded the Jews that if a brother died without a son who could carry on the name, then a brother or a near relative had the duty to marry his, uh, the dead brother's widow. And the firstborn son to them would, act, would be counted as the son of the deceased brother and not... The, not, not the son of the, uh, the, the, the brother or family member. And so, in, so it was a command of God. Why? To prevent, in their minds, was one of the most tragic things possible. The, era- the, the, the erasure of a clan, the removal of a family from their inheritance, especially in Israel's day, the, the, the removal of an inheritance. From among the people, if a family group died out without an heir, their inheritance would be given to somebody else, to a different family. But God gave it to them. And so it was a way to improve, uh, uh, preserve the inheritance that God had given. And so, and so fulfilling one's duty to marry your dead brother's widow was an incredibly honorable act on the part of a brother. To carry forward his brother's name so that his brother's name might not be cut off. That his family may not die and be forgotten. That his inheritance would be passed on to future generations. But many, you might not be surprised, were reluctant to fulfill this duty. Why? Well, for one thing, you just might not like your brother's widow a whole lot. I mean, your brother married her, not you. And besides all this, one of the things that really impaired him was that it could potentially impair your own inheritance. Because if you married this woman and you had a firstborn son, well, then that son would technically be your brother's son. Well, then what if you didn't have another son? Then in one sense you had a son, but he wasn't your son. He was your brother's son. And now, you're, now you have no heir to carry on your name. And so, a willingness to fulfill the, the duty of Leverite marriage towards your brother was an act of great love and self-sacrifice and faith. It showed a willingness to marry a woman not of your own choosing out of love for your brother. It also ensured provision and protection for the widow who might otherwise have no means of provision for her. And it was an act of faith because it meant that you were believing God that if you acted honorably and did what was right by helping preserve the family line of your brother, that you trusted God to give you an heir of your own. 
And so it's an incredible, noble, incredibly noble thing to be willing to carry on the line of your deceased brother that he might maintain an inheritance within Israel. It was trusting God. It was an act of faith. So when Naomi says to uh, Orpah and Ruth that will I have this, will, even if I were to have uh, conceived sons uh, this very day, would you wait for them to be married? What is she saying is, what she's saying is, is it, if it were even possible for, for me to have sons who can carry on the name of this family and help provide and protect you, would you wait for them? You see, she's given up hope of deliverance, of redemption there. She says, go back to your people and perhaps you could find a little happiness there. Orpah is persuaded, but Ruth is not. Even though she is a Gentile, even though she's not an Israelite, even though she's a Moabitess, her heart is knit to this Israelite woman. And in one of the most beautiful statements of faithfulness and love in the entire Bible, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is what I mean by God gives grace in unexpected ways. Here is a foreigner, a young woman, a Moabitess. She's a Gentile in terms of God's covenant She's far off. She's not a descendant of Abraham. She's not an heir of the promises. She's not part of the covenant of God. And loyalty to Naomi on Ruth's part means giving up everything on her part. She's going to leave her country. She's going to leave her family. She's essentially leaving her nationality. She's leaving her gods, little g. The whole identity was wrapped up in, 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 in their customs and their culture and their worship. And she was going to leave all of that to, to go and live with a different people group, a different culture, to, to serve and worship another god. She was giving up her total identity to be with Naomi. This, this story is remarkable because this great act, and I would say one of, the, one of the great acts of faithfulness in all of the Hebrew scriptures is performed not by a Hebrew, but by a Moabitess, a Gentile, one far off from God. This, I believe, is huge, and it is the way of God saying through this story of redemptive history, it is a way of God saying, I am the God of the Gentiles too. I'm the God of all peoples. And I have plans for all peoples, not just the Jews. In fact, I have a, I have a plan for this young Moabite woman. You see, God showed great mercy to Naomi because she lost Her husband, she lost her two sons, but God gave her a daughter. Faithful unto death. And, by the way, if you pick up on it, he is giving her hope in the midst of utter loss. Why? 
You got you got to read you got to read it carefully. Naomi, she's past the age of having a child who can carry on the family name, but Ruth is one of her sons, widows. If she returns to Israel, it means there's a chance that a relative of Elimelech could come and perform the duty of a redeemer and carry on the family name. What is it? What is Ruth to Naomi? She's hope. She's grace of God. A foreshadow of redemption. You see, God never promises an easy life, but God is the God of all hope. In Christ, we are never without hope. It it might come in unexpected ways. You might have to look for it, but it is there. Because God is the king. And the Bible says he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even in situations like Naomi's, where it seems like there is no way good can come out of it. Just you wait and see. That's how God works. You see, there's tragedy everywhere, and there's people out there crying for hope. There was a recent tragedy of a rather prominent pastor who committed suicide. Even followers of Christ can succumb to hopelessness. Every day is a fight of faith. A fight to believe what we know is true. To refuse to believe the lies of sin, the flesh, and the enemy. That there is no hope when in Jesus Christ there is always hope. In the deepest darkness there is always light. There is Christ who is ever faithful. Who promises to give you all that you need. Who promises you that if you belong to him, you are secure because you have nothing that even the deepest darkness, you have something that even the deepest darkness can take away. A guaranteed inheritance in the land that is to come. The Apostle Paul understood this in 2 Timothy 4.18. In the last letter that we have recorded that he wrote before he died, he said, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord rescued Paul. The Lord delivered Paul safely into his heavenly kingdom. How did he do it? Death. Through death. You see, Paul knew that his death was near, but he didn't lose hope because for him, even death was deliverance into the kingdom of God. In Christ, there is always hope. There is always grace. So number one, life is hard, living broken in brokenness. Number two, God gives grace in unexpected ways. And number three, the Lord is at work in the good and the bad. The Lord is at work in the good and the bad. In these final verses of the chapter, it says they went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women said, is this, 
Naomi, and she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Mara, see, Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. At this point in her life when, you know, this woman that they once knew 10 years ago, but she, cut, she left with a husband and two sons, and she comes back with just a young Moabite woman. And you got to remember, this is a village. It's a small town. They caused the stir. Everybody's talking about it. And at this point, there's no point in whitewashing life. So Naomi just lays it out there. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. There are many ways that we could try to interpret this. We, we could just say that these tragedies in her life has made her just a bitter old woman and that she blames God for it. There's lots of people who succumb to that. You see, growing old, it's either going to make you better or it's going to make you bitter. And it's up to you which one you choose. We can't become bitter towards God. We must beware about becoming bitter towards God. We can't forget the lesson of Job who said, Naked we came from the womb and naked we shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We know that even in tragedy, God works all things together for good. We could interpret it that way, but I'm a little too optimistic to interpret it that way. I want to believe better about Naomi. I want to believe that she indeed was deeply wounded and hurt, as she ought to be from her emptiness and her brokenness and the pain and the loss that she experienced. And she doesn't want to whitewash her pain and Sometimes we do that, and that's not right either. We shouldn't just whitewash life and act like things that should hurt don't hurt. That's not how we handle pain. But we don't give in to bitterness either. And, and I just want to think that, that she does what we ought to do, and that is lay our sorrow and her at God's feet, knowing that he can handle it and that he can deal with it. She acknowledges that God is ultimately in control of her pain and her loss. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me, she says. And that's true. God is in control, even over the tragedies of life. This is the bitter cry of deep sorrow, but I believe it's the bitter cry of deep sorrow that still acknowledges God's rule and God's reign. And I believe this is true because later, Naomi rejoices in the Lord for her her redemption. So as we close act one of this story, Naomi and Ruth are back in Israel. The days are dark, but God is still at work. God is at work in the good and in the bad. But in the end, the good will win. As we close, we have to consider the greater story to which this story points. You see, there was another person who once suffered great loss, who we might say was a victim of evil circumstances. And in his hour of greatest 
trial. He was left empty, not by death of his friends, but by abandonment from his friends. And he was condemned on capital charges for crimes he didn't commit. But all these things from a human perspective ultimately matter not because for his from his perspective, his life wasn't being taken from him. He was laying it down. He was giving it for God. He was the servant of God. So that means life wasn't about him. So rather let God's will, not his will be done. And he was nailed to a cross. And not long before he was nailed to a cross, he was full. But on that cross, he was completely empty, naked. Even the clothes on his back were gambled away. And even in that circumstance in which it might seem humanly impossible for any good to come, the greatest good that has ever been done in human history was accomplished through it. And so the point is this. If God can work the greatest possible good through the greatest wrong ever done, don't you think God can work good through your pain, through your loss, through your sorrow, through your suffering? God is at work in the good and in the bad. In fact, we can say that God is so great that he is working good through the bad. In fact, that's what Joseph told his brothers. What you meant for evil... God meant for good. So as we close this evening, the question we need to think about is this. Have we let God, do we see the brokenness in the world and can we see that Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins on the cross, the one who rose from the dead doing what? Showing us that redemption is coming. That life will come out of death. That light will shine in the darkness. Do we know and believe that Jesus is redeeming the brokenness of that world? And have you embraced his redemption as your own? The Redeemer has come and he's coming back. And he can redeem the mess of our lives if you'll turn from your sins and follow him. And so as we go through this story of Ruth, I pray that we'll learn that God is a redeeming God. That he's at work in all these things and that we always have hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your redemption of this mess.